Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a Buddhist-oriented path to recovery from addictions. For more information, please visit us at refugerecovery.org. Okay, one minute. Um, Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining me tonight. Sound okay from your side? Good enough? Cool. Um, This is live on YouTube, but it's not live. It's being recorded. Um, We post it uh, later onto YouTube. And just a reminder to everyone, this is not a refuge recovery meeting. This is a offering of Refuge Recovery World Services. It's a teacher-led offering where once a month, first Thursday of the month, I share some Buddhist teachings in the role of a Buddhist teacher, um, which is much different than what we're doing in Refuge Recovery, where we're peer-led in the meetings and hopefully nobody's playing teacher in meetings, including me. Uh, I do my best uh, when at meetings to just be a member and just share from I statements rather than explaining to everybody what the Buddha taught. Um, We're in a series on Thursday nights, uh, the first Thursdays that I started four months ago on the heart practices four or five months ago. And so we've gone through loving kindness and compassion and appreciation. And we have also done some forgiveness practices on the first Thursday uh, events. And we're at the last one and last one of the year as the calendar year comes to an end, we're on the topic of equanimity. And um, so I'm gonna share some teachings on equanimity and then we'll have a short meditation and um, hopefully some time for Q&A. We will have just a one hour for class tonight. So we'll be done at 6 p.m. Sometimes I go over to an hour 15, hour and a half, but tonight I actually only have one hour. Um, I have to get to a dinner party, my girlfriend's birthday's dinner party. So I gotta get out of here at six. And um, equanimity comes in the Buddha's teachings in a few different ways. In Refuge Recovery, I mainly presented it as uh, the heart practice that balances loving kindness and compassion and appreciation. Um, And it it comes in what in traditional Buddhism is called the Brahma Viharas. Brahma means uh, divine and Vihara is like a a place. It's um, uh, it's often translated as abode, but it can mean dwelling. So it means the divine aspects, dwelling in the divine aspects of your own heart, uh, heart practices, the loving part of our hearts, the compassionate part of our hearts, the appreciative and balancing that with uh, the experience, the heart quality of being equanimous, being at ease, being peaceful in the midst of the 10,000 forms of sorrow that we experience as human beings and the 10,000 forms of joy that we also have the potential to experience. Hopefully you're experiencing some of the 10,000 joys of life. The core understanding in order for equanimity to make sense, and as you know, in in refuge recovery, we use the phrase, um, all beings are responsible for their own actions. And happiness or unhappiness is not dependent on what happens, but how we respond to what happens. And so this, is the teaching of karma. This is the Buddha's teaching. They, um, I mean, it's a core teaching in, in refuge. It comes in the uh, first factor of the Eightfold Path, understanding reality as it is. And um, from a Buddhist perspective, what we're dealing with here uh, in this human incarnation is karma, cause and effect. 
uh, how we act, how we respond is going to create our reality. And so it's not what happens, but how we respond to what happens that is the core of what we, in an all human beings, uh, you know, Buddhism applies to all of us. Um, but of course, as recovering addicts, uh, often we've been much more reactive, much more um, impulsive, <laughs> much more uh, addictive in our relationship to craving for pleasure and aversion to pain. And many of us have spent most of our lives blaming the pain in our lives for our addictions, um, uh, rather than seeing that no matter how much pain we've been through, we do have the power, the potential, the ability to change our relationship to pain, to develop compassion, and to actually have equanimity, a sense of ease and well-being, even when life is currently painful, not just when it gets good, not just when, um, uh, you know, when it's easy to be comfortable, but even in the midst of discomfort, the potential of equanimity is to be at ease with life as it is. One of the ways that we can tend to suffer is um, clinging <laughs> to an outcome. And uh, even with our loving kindness practices or our compassion practices, where we're uh, expressing aspirations internally in our meditation, we're saying, may I be at ease? May I be free from suffering? May I be happy? Or we're saying that to a friend, may you be at ease? May you be happy? May you be free from suffering? Or we're saying it to you know, the world, may all living beings be happy, may all... Um, and when we wish that, but then we have some attachment and some expectation, we can create a lot of suffering. I once heard a Tibetan Buddhist teacher uh, say, he was teaching, he was doing some teachings on compassion. And he said, um, when it comes to developing compassion, you have to be very careful that you're not developing idiot compassion. <laughs> And he said, idiot compassion is when we care, but we're attached to an outcome. It's not free, non-attached, loving, compassionate compassion. It's I care about you and I need you to stop suffering or I'm going to suffer with you. I'm going to suffer at you. I'm going to suffer about your suffering. And equanimity is the understanding and the phrases that we use are something like, I understand that your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, your karma, how you respond. Karma is action, how we act, how we react, how we respond. Karma is not what happens to us. Karma is how we relate to what happens. This is really important because there's a general misunderstanding in the West of what karma is. The way that we use it usually is about kind of what has happened, like, oh, the that was my shitty karma. <laughs> my car got broken into, must have been my karma. Maybe, but for our recovery uh, process, what karma also is, and I think more importantly, is how I respond to my car getting broken into. That action happened. How I act in response to it, how I react. I'm developing my karma. If I act with anger and hatred and, you know, I'm then creating suffering on top of something already unpleasant. But if I understand that the wise response is acceptance, is maybe some sadness or fear or, you know, some feeling of, uh, um, you know, when something gets stolen from us, uh, it can feel quite um, vulnerable and, uh, you know, a, a betrayal on some level. So feeling the, the emotions wisely experiencing that, but rather than acting in a negative way that creates more suffering for us, learning to respond with equanimity. Ah, oh, that happened. It was unpleasant. Some loss happened. So I hope this is making sense. 
everyone has their own karma. We have our own karma. And as we know, I don't know what your experience was, but so many of us as addicts had so many people loving us and cheering us on and hoping that we'd get clean, but we couldn't do it for them. No matter how much people loved us, it didn't stop us from being addicts. And our addiction didn't cause their suffering. Their reaction to our addiction caused their suffering. And so then we get into recovery, get sober, get into recovery, establish our abstinence, our bottom lines, our sobriety, our recovery, whatever we want to call it. And we try to become compassionate. We try to become loving. We try to have appreciation. But often there's that very human tendency to have an expectation and cling to an outcome. And when you love, when you care, the near enemy, the very close, you know, over here is love and right here is attachment, (laughs) is clinging. It's like, I love you, so I cling to you, which is basically saying, I love you, so I suffer rather than what equanimity is saying is, how about if we learn to love, learn to care, learn to appreciate and see each other as our own individuated karmic processes that we don't need to suffer at. And that ultimately, I said this in the compassion and it's, it's important to know that true compassion is not suffering with someone. It's actually when we're in a place of true open-hearted compassion, it's equanimous. It's I care about your pain and I know I can't fix you. I know, you know, this is like, I I feel like equanimity is the Buddhist Al-Anon, right? It's the Buddha's teachings on how to be in relationship with people. and not suffer, how to care about people, how to love people and not suffer about our inability to control each other. Everyone's happiness is dependent on their own actions, not our love, not our wishes, not our, not our recovery. They've got to do their own recovery not our non-attachment. They have to do their own non-attachment. That having been said, I don't wanna go too far down the, um, uh, you know, detachment or non-attachment because part of what we're learning is to be of service, do all that we can for each other, be of service, answer the phone, reach out, you know, raise your hand at the meetings, like connect. We're learning to be generous, you know, with appropriate generosity. We're learning to uh, educate, to encourage, to, you know, pick them up and take them to detox, invite them to the meeting, do all of that service that we can do without the expectation that it's going to work. That just because I've helped you, just because I've listened to your inventories, done whatever, right, doesn't mean you're going to stay free. That's based on your actions. And so that equanimity that understands true compassion is non-attachment. True appreciation is non-attachment. True loving kindness is not clinging or controlling or needing anyone to be any different than they are right now. You want them to be. And that that difference between, you know, if we look at the Buddha's second noble truth, that all of our suffering, all of our human suffering is caused by craving and clinging. All of it. No, there's no, there's not a time that we can identify where we're suffering about something that we weren't attached to, craving for, clinging to, or, you know, aversion, which is just the same thing, craving for it to be different than it is.
I had a point there, but I totally lost it. <laughs> Let me see if it comes back. That true, uh, it's about, you know, all of it, all of what we're doing is about non-attachment. My teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, used to say, uh, we could boil the whole Buddhist path down to two words, let go. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of needing the present to be any different than it is, and you won't suffer. It's the craving, it's the clinging, it's the aversion that causes our suffering. To be equanimous is to be non-attached to whatever is happening, being different than it is, to seeing through that lens of wisdom, that hard experience of wisdom that says, I love the shit out of you. And I know you have your own karma. I care about you so deeply. And I know you have your own karma that I can't fix. That, and I don't need to suffer with you in this. My job is to end suffering in my own life. I will support you as much as I can. Each one of us having that intention. I'll support you as, you know, service, generosity, as much as I can. But I know you have to do the work yourself. This is the core of, of equanimity in this way. This ability to be at ease whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, without clinging to it. This wisdom view that sees everyone as, I don't know what the image is, but kind of seeing each other as these uh, totally personally responsible for our own happiness. And it's hard, right? This is counter, like uh, we're wired, instinctually wired to cling to each other. This non-clinging is radical. It's one of the many ways that the Buddha's teachings are so radical. So let's spend uh, a few minutes meditating, maybe a short, like 20 minute, 15, 20 minute uh, equanimity meditation. And uh, then we'll have some discussion about equanimity. So uh, find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed and take the meditative posture. And when you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed. Establish mindfulness in the body, in the present, letting go of the past as we bring our full awareness into the body, sitting, breathing. Letting go of our plans, our hopes, our fantasies about the future as we direct our full attention to the here and now. And take a moment to soften, to relax, release any unnecessary tension the body's holding. Releasing the brow, the jaw, shoulders and belly. Part of equanimity is this radical acceptance of this moment just as it is without resisting it. Tension in the belly is resistance. Softening the belly is acceptance. 
So even if you can't fully soften the belly, just the edges, just whatever you can release, relinquish, let go of in this moment. Starting with this reflection on your own responsibility for your own happiness. Saying to yourself, I know I'm responsible for my own actions, my karma. Just silently in your own heart. Remembering that it's not what happens, but how we respond to what happens. Remembering that pain isn't the cause of unhappiness. That's our resistance, our lack of compassion for pain that causes our suffering, our unhappiness. The intention to learn to be equanimous in this mind, in this body, in our process of recovery, may I learn to respond wisely to the unpleasant thoughts to the cravings, the aversions. In this life of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, I respond in such a way that creates ease and peace rather than turmoil and suffering. And begin to extend this practice to each other. Think about the people in your life that you care for, people in the Sangha that you care for, in your family, friends, colleagues. And remind yourself that they have their own karma, that their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not your wishes for them.
can bring some loving kindness and some compassion to your loved ones. I care about you. I wish for your happiness and freedom. And I understand that I can't do the work for you. And extend beyond your known friends and family. Think about the people in your vicinity, in your neighborhood, your town, whether you live in a large city or a rural place. Imagine the people nearby, everyone's seeking happiness. Just reminding ourselves, everyone's creating their own suffering based on how they respond to what's happening. Everyone has the ability to develop wisdom. Extend outward in widening circles to the east and west and north and south. This world, this planet that we live on, with so much suffering, confusion, just remembering everyone has their own Karma, everyone's responsible for their own actions. Although what is happening may be very painful, we do have the ability to meet pain with compassion, to learn, to develop, to uncover a compassionate heart. All beings have this power, this potential. Although what may be happening Some's experience in this moment is incredibly pleasant, pleasurable. Pleasure is not the cause of happiness, it's too impermanent. The tendency to get attached, to get addicted is too strong. 
true contentment comes from letting go, understanding the impermanent nature of all things. saying to ourselves, may I learn to be at peace with this world just the way it is, with all of the ignorance and confusion, with all of the beauty and wisdom. through compassion and non-attachment. I experience the equanimity of the Buddha, the wise and peaceful heart. In that teaching on Letting go, Ajahn Chah went on to say, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little bit of peace or equanimity. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of equanimity. And if you let go completely, just in this moment, letting go of the past and future, Let go completely, accepting ourselves just as we are, even this mind that judges and fears, craves, compares. Let go of needing it to be otherwise. It's not your fault. That's just what the mind does. The more we let go, the more the mind settles. He said, eventually it becomes peaceful like a forest pool. Imagine this image of a pool in a tranquil forest. And he said, all kinds of strange and wonderful animals come to drink from the stillness. Our thoughts and emotions passing through the equanimous heart, unperturbed. As we remind ourselves that we are totally responsible for our own recovery, our own healing, our own freedom, as we remember that this is true for all living beings, all beings are heirs to their own karma, inheriting their reactions to what's happening.
may each one of us train our heart and mind thoroughly to experience the freedom and tranquility, the joy and equanimity that is available to us in this lifetime. And this form, this body, this mind that has experienced so much suffering and addiction. Now we heal, we recover, we awaken. When you're ready, you can allow your eyes to be open, bring attention back to our gathering, our Zoom Sangha uh, gathering tonight. Total responsibility for our own happiness total non-attachment to other people's views and opinions and reactions and is the goal. And of course, it's an aspirational meditation, the hope, the intention, the, I wanna go in that direction. I wanna go towards peace. I wanna go towards freedom. How do I get there? Train your mind. Put these, remember, reminders. Oh, I'm responsible for my, it's not what happens. It's how I react. That's mind blowing. Before I started studying Buddhism, I had no concept that I was responsible, that I was creating all my own suffering. I was certain it was the world's fault. And so this reframing of it's not what's happening, it's how we're reacting to what's happening. And I've seen directly over and over as incredibly difficult things have happened <laughs> in recovery, the ability to choose a wise response. Not all the time but more and more uh, ability to choose an equanimous, compassionate, non-resistant, non-adversarial response to life. So some brief reflections on uh, equanimity. And of course, there's much more to it, but uh, I'll leave it there with some openness to your questions, your comments, your uh, clarifications about this aspect of our recovery program and how we balance equanimity. Michael, go ahead and jump in. Uh, thanks a lot, Noah, for that. Uh, lecture and the meditation. Um, really cool. I really needed to uh, zone in a little equanimity today and, uh, you know, dealing with people that 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 are difficult in my life and, and realizing that uh, it's my reaction to their, yeah, I don't have to be pulled into their pain. I love that. You know, I don't have to suffer because they're suffering. Um, but one thing I am curious about is this idea of um, how to balance equanimity with uh, like um, being of service, like for, you know, social justice. Um, you know, I, I live in a community of humans and sometimes I don't like the way things are operating structurally, or, you know, I wanna be involved in changing the way the world is for others. 
Um, and so I guess that kind of relates to this, uh, this term spiritual bypass. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, so I'm just really curious what your thoughts are around service and um, the, <laughs> the dangers of spiritual bypass. Um, there is a danger here. And, you know, these same teachings on everyone has their own karma have been uh, grossly misused. Uh, it was one of the things that the Buddha in his lifetime was fighting against this racist, sexist system uh, of the, the caste system. And, um, you know, where they were saying like, no, it's your karma to be oppressed. And so I love the question because there is a danger here. And it's why we have to put so much focus on compassion, on service, on engagement, uh, our factor on the path of right action, right? <laughs> not, not just this focus on disengagement and detachment, but what are we doing, right? What, what is the service? What's the action? Political, social engagement. Equanimity is not having an expectation of a certain result. We're going to Hopefully we're gonna spend our lives giving it away, being engaged, trying to create a positive change in ourselves, in our family, but understanding that no matter how socially, politically, spiritually active we are, we can't make anybody else. We can't take anyone else's ignorance away. We can educate, we can support, we can encourage, we can protect, we can feed people. You know, we can, there's some actions that we can take, but we can't make anybody not be ignorant. <laughs> we can't make anybody be compassionate. We can't make anybody uh, be non-attached. You know, the core causes of human suffering are internal. So for sure, we can address the external world to the best of our ability, can and should, and it's an engaged part of refuge. And, you know, rather than, you know, I, I was really intentional in refuge rather than doing the 12-step thing that said just be of service to other alcoholics or other addicts. I said, no, 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 let's be of service. Let's create a positive change on the planet. Service and generosity is, yes, let's help each other. Totally, let's help each other, but not just each other. Let's not be too small-minded about the kind of positive changes we're looking for. But let's also not suffer about our inability to save the planet. Let's not suffer about our inability to stop racism or sexism or homophobia or animal torture or any of the gross forms of ignorance and oppression that abound. Let's address it in whatever ways we can and let's also not suffer about it, right? The, the, this is the Buddha's model. He spoke out against racism and sexism and you know did really radical things. He was a political activist in some ways. But his core teaching was we all have to do the work ourselves. How can I inspire people to do the work themselves was his main uh, message is the way that I hear it. But not let's get so myopic about our own suffering and Buddhism as self-help that we don't let fuck the world becomes too, you know, bypass as, as Michael's asking that we get to into, you know, avoidance and bypass. So I, I hope that's helpful. And it's why we balance equanimity with compassion, with service, with generosity, with action, not just sit back and be at peace with the way things are. Yeah, Work thank you. hard for a positive change and accept the way things are. <laughs> Well, continuing to work hard for a positive change. Yeah, thanks, Michael. That's a great question. Dustin, go ahead and jump in. What's up? Um, 
So I had a question about, this is so great that we're talking about this right now, because um, it's so apropos to what I'm dealing with. I went to rehab and I was not ready or wanting to go at all, but something happened when I went that like sparked, you know, uh, a new appreciation and, and desire for life. So my friend who is struggling greatly, I have this feeling like, oh, I just need to get her there and this magic thing will happen to her, you know, and I know um, I can't force anyone to do anything. Um, and I don't even I just wanted to pose this question. I don't know if you even have the answer or if there is an answer, but um, the wise way to deal with someone that you I, I know I'm probably way too attached to that outcome. <clears throat> but is the wise response? This is something I've been battling with cutting myself off from this person and letting them find their way and risking losing them forever to death or overdose or whatever, or is it, um, you know, keep trying like I've been doing for months now to for basically trying to force this person to go, you know, and hopes that they'll have this magical white light experience like I had. Well, I mean, I love the question. Um, it's a good question. I think a lot of us have been in this situation. But also, you know, a lot of us have been, as, as you have, Dustin, you know, all of, you know, probably most of us have been on the other side where people are trying to save us, taking yeah. us to rehab, and then we're walking, we're taking us to detox, and then we're splitting or taking us to a meeting, and we're not ready yet. And yep. so, you know, from your own direct experience, that it wasn't until you were ready. Now you do once in a while hear these stories about how interventions work. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people here tonight had that, like I wasn't fucking ready and then they did an intervention and they got me in rehab and then the lights went on. Some people, I feel like it's not, you know, it's not like the TV show, the intervention TV show, where it's like in everybody that they do an intervention on. Um, it works sometimes, you know, when you kind of, people expressing how, how much they love us and how much they're afraid. Sometimes it, it sparks something in us that helps motivate us to, to save our own lives and to do the work. But most of the time I continue to subscribe to this view that most of the time people got to be done. Yeah. And, and unfortunately the reality is most addicts never get clean. Yeah. You know, mo you know, like those of us that, you know, you've had this experience of um, you know being in and out and coming back and it really sticking this time and being excited about recovery and um, you know and so then you want to share that you're like I'm so like this is amazing like recovery is great meditation's super cool and people are, are like what the fuck are you talking about how could meditation be fun how could not doing drugs be a good idea <laughs> or whatever the addiction is uh, and you know we can all relate because we were there at some point. So there's just, we have limited ability. Now, part of your question was, um, you know, what, what, what's the right amount of boundaries? You know, do we walk away? And, you know, we gotta watch out for that, say that binary black and white thinking of like, well, either I'm gonna save you or I'm never gonna talk to you again. Either you're gonna get clean now or I can't tolerate watching you kill yourself. Sometimes those kind of boundaries help people um, but also sometimes I was talking to someone earlier about, um, you know, recovery friends that relapse and, you know, how do you continue, you know, can you carry on a, a friendship? And I, I was reflecting on a friend of mine who, old roommate of mine who was clean for a while and we were roommates and I think he had 10 years in recovery and, and then he wasn't sober anymore and started drinking and using and and I maintained a friendship with him. It was a more distant friendship. We weren't hanging out all the time because he was doing his thing, but we, we maintained a friendship. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, he came back to me and he said, you know, I'm done. That shit doesn't work at all. And now he's back in and in refuge and doing the thing. And part of it is because like, I, I never severed that communication. I was like, I'm here. I love you. I, you know, I hope you're okay. Or, you know, um, I know your situation that you're talking about where it's like, it's clear they're not okay. Mm -hmm. 
But sometimes maintaining that distant, friendly, I'm always here if you want help, rather than trying to force them to get help when they're not ready yet. Super helpful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Alan, go ahead. Um, so you, you touched a little bit on this earlier, but I, I wanted to maybe pose a different dynamic. But as a, as a relatively new father, I find myself in a situation where, you know, I'm, I'm heavily attached to, you know, to my child um, and really trying to find that balance between equanimity and, and compassion really with, you know, with a child which at some point, right, hasn't developed the awareness really to be responsible for their actions, um, you know, in, in the true sense. Um, so just wanted to talk maybe just a little bit of that, that, slightly different perspective on balancing equanimity. 100%. Like I, uh, it's good for us to remember that our kids have their own karma. Just to remember that, you know, just to see these beings that need love and support and boundaries and they need all of that parenting healthy, right? But also, you know, I don't know what a good example is. Maybe that kind of example of, you know, you can tell a kid that the stove is hot, but until they touch it, they're not going to really believe you, right? <laughs> and then they touch it and they get burned. And they're, then they're like, oh shit, like that's hot. That karma of touching that is ouch. And you see like, oh, they have to, kids are going to get hurt. Like we can't, we can't bubble wrap our children, right? We can't, we can't stop them from experiencing pain. They're going to, just like us, subject to impermanence and, you know, loss. And at some point our children are, you know, in the ideal situation are going to have to watch us die, their own parents, you know, just like remembering all of that. And seeing them as like, this is a person that has taken birth and has signed the contract in this world of impermanence and pain. And, um, and I'm going to do all I can to teach them about wisdom and the truth of impermanence and compassion. And, um, you know, the Buddha said that he thought that uh, what he was teaching could be understand, understood by a seven-year-old. That by the time, you know, so before that, you don't want to too quickly, you know, when your kids are three and four and they're just developing a sense of self, you don't want to too quickly pull the carpet, you know, from them. But I feel like when my kids were about five, they started to ask about death and rather than lying, telling them the truth about death and, you know, just letting it normalizing like, yeah, it's it's what's happening here. You know, we, we have this impermanent lifespan and hopefully we'll have a long, healthy, loving family life. But we don't know. So all of that is ideal. And then I'll tell you, you know, the, the truth. Um, I feel like it's probably like my kids are here. My son was just out here a minute ago, fucking with me while I was teaching. Um, he wanted something to eat. We're going to dinner in 10 minutes. Uh, I, I, I will admit that um, sometimes I, it's one of the places where I lie. You know, like if your kid says, are we going to be okay? Or I'm I going to be okay or something like that. Um, you know, anytime anybody asks you is like, is everything going to be okay? And you say, yes, you're lying. <laughs> because we don't fucking know if it's going to be okay or not. So anytime we project and create this like false sense of security for somebody, it's a form of dishonesty. My own feeling is it's a good thing to do for children. You should totally lie to your kids and tell them it's going to be okay. Well, at some point, you know, letting them um, in on the reality that, everything's impermanent and there's all of this pain and there's all of this oppression on this planet. And we've got a lot of work to do internally as well as externally. Uh, 
Um, and I think it's important for, for kids to figure that out um, and for us not to do be too caudally around, you know, protecting them from the realities. The Buddha thought by the time people were seven, we could teach them the Four Noble Truths, the reality of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering is possible. And this is where like, what an amazing thing of like, you can frame this for your kids of like, you're like a superhero that can end suffering through your own actions. And you're not, and you don't have to have a superpower. You know, you're like a Batman superhero, right? You just, all you need is the gadgets and the gadgets are mindfulness and compassion and equanimity. And you can develop that in your own heart and framing it like that for kids. Um, you know, and again, my experience, like I had a, a meditator dad and I was like, yeah, whatever, dad, I'm fucking your hippie bullshit. And my kids are a little bit like that with me too. My daughter recently, I was trying to get her to do some mindfulness and she said to me, yeah, maybe, but I don't want to learn it from you. <laughs> and you know, so we have to get that too of like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe we're not the right person for some of those teachings. I hope that's helpful, Alan. And uh, I'm gonna say that uh, he, Jonathan and AB, last one, and then I'm gonna call it a night. Yeah, cool, thanks Noah. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciated what you said about the Alan thing, right? Cause like the, the first refuge meeting I went to uh, whenever, however long ago, the meditation is equanimity. And that's the first thing, the first line of the phrase, like the first line of the phrase was like, oh shit, this is the codependency meditation. And like, for me, I'd been, you know, I'd been sober for a few years already, but like, I've been working on codependency recovery and it was fucking me up. Like it was making me crazy, right? Like whether it was with, you know, my work, I was just an early social worker at the time and like trying to figure that shit out and like sponsoring people and having friends. Like, I mean, like I have, I have a friend now that we got clean at the same time, but then he relapsed six years ago and has been relapsing since. And like, man, like I relate to that earlier shit about not knowing what to do about it. And sometimes just like feeling like I'm like, I need to leave this relationship. But like this practice specifically has, has like equipped me for all of those things, like social work, being in recovery, right? Like it's been so instrumental and it's just ironic. Like this is the first time I've come to like this format here with you. And like, of course, equanimity is a thing. It's just like always that, it's always that thing. It's like, yeah, man, that's, that's, that's what you need. And you're like, it's so important to me. Uh, so I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that and share that and thank you for it. So. Awesome. You're very welcome. And nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. And, um, yeah, this is very, very important balancing part of our recovery practice, uh, especially when it comes to relationships. And we're all in relationships and it's all a big relationship, whether you have kids or friends or sangha, or you have a job or you leave the house once in a while, it's all relationships. <laughs> and uh, the more we can see through this wisdom lens, the, the better. Uh, pleasure to be with you all tonight. This is also recorded. We'll post it later. Uh, if you missed the previous loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness uh, talks, they're all on the, the Refuge Recovery World Services YouTube channel. You can check them out there. And um, I'm going to skip the first Thursday in January. I was thinking about doing it, but I'm going to be on vacation with my family and sometimes I'll take an hour and do it, but we're going to be in Costa Rica and who knows how the cell service will probably be fine, but I might be surfing. I don't know where I'm going to be at five o'clock on vacation. So uh, I'm going to skip it this month and we'll, we'll start again next month in January. We'll start again in February and really good to see everybody and uh, see you soon. I hope. Refuge Recovery is freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation to support us, you may do so by following the link in the episode notes. We appreciate your generosity.